When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The Pharisees challenged him. Here you are, appearing as your own witness. Your testimony is not valid. Jesus answered, Even if I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is valid, for I know where I came from and where I'm going. But you have no idea where I came from or where I'm going. You judge by human standards. I pass judgment on no one. But if I do judge, my decisions are true, because I am not alone. I stand with the Father who sent me. In your own law, it is written that the testimony of two witnesses is true. I am one who testifies for myself. My other witness is the Father who sent me. Then they asked him, Where is your father? You do not know me or my father, Jesus replied. If you knew me, you would know my father also. He spoke these words while teaching in the temple courts near the place where the offerings were put. Yet no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. So my wife just leant over to me and said, Lachlan, that's the wrong part of the Bible. <laughs> It'll become a bit clearer in like 10 seconds, I promise. The book of Exodus in the Bible records some of the most impressive miracles of God, with one of them being the pillar of fire that he used to lead the nation of Israel while they were in the wilderness. Now, that movie takes a few liberties with the pillar of fire, but you get the idea that this is a vivid and impressive display of God's power. This is a moment that is worth being remembered and celebrated by every generation after this event. And that is exactly what the Jewish people did. Every night during the Feast of Tabernacles, the temple courts would be filled and packed with people as they participated in a great candle-lighting ceremony. This ceremony was to remind the people of this great miracle of God. So large and bright were these candles that Jewish writers from the time exclaimed that there wasn't a courtyard in Jerusalem that was not lit up by the glow of these candles. It is into this context that Jesus stands up 
as they are celebrating the great pillar of fire in their history and declares that he is the light of the world. Now, if this is your first time at church, you should probably be told that we're in the middle of a series exploring the Gospel of John in our Bibles. From chapters 5 to 10 in this Gospel, we see Jesus attending several Jewish festivals. At each of these festivals, he delivers teaching that further reveals who he is, and that teaching then leads to further conflict between him and the religious leaders of the time. This week, we're in the very middle of that section, chapter 8. And what we find in chapter 8 is a series of four conversations between Jesus and the people. And these four conversations really encapsulate this idea of identity and conflict that this section of John really comes to emulate for us. And so tonight, we're going to look at those four different conversations and see what God is teaching us through his word in this section of scripture. But first, as we approach God's word, let me pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for the chance tonight to share it with everyone in this room. And I pray that your spirit would be working through me to only let truth come out. Amen. Conversation number one, light and witnesses from verses 12 to 20, which is the section we actually had read for us this evening. This section starts with Jesus' direct claim that he is the light of the world. So my opening question is, what do you think of when you think about light? Now, maybe you're one of our youth and you've just got back from youth camp. And when you think of light, you think about the blinding spotlight we hired to stop you getting to the dining hall during our game of Spotlight. Maybe you're a biblical scholar and you think, ah, Lachlan, when I think about light, I think about that thing that God created on the first day of creation. Genesis 1.3 says, God said, let there be light, and there was light. Maybe you're a scientist, and for you, light is that portion of the electromagnetic spectrum that is visible to the human eye and has properties of both a particle and a wave. That's right, physics degree right here. Actually, in preparation for reminding myself of what light is in a scientific sense, I pulled out one of my old physics textbooks, and I found this surprisingly insightful quote in it. Let me read it to you. No single answer to the question, what is light, satisfies the many contexts in which light is experienced, explored, and exploited. The physicist is interested in the physical properties of light and the artist in an aesthetic appreciation of the visual world. Through the sense of sight, light is the primary tool for perceiving the world and communicating within it. Light from the sun warms the earth, drives global weather patterns, and initiates the life-sustaining process of photosynthesis. On the grander scale, light's interaction with matter have helped shape the structure of the universe. Indeed, light provides a window to the universe from cosmological to atomic scales. It's not often you find answers to biblical questions in an old, dusty physics book. But you see, that definition of light actually highlighted two of the things Jesus is trying to say when he talks about being the light of the world. And those two things is illumination and life. Or in the words of the textbook, 
Light is the primary tool for perceiving the world, illumination, and light initiates the life-sustaining process, life. So let's look at what those two things mean. Firstly, light is the primary tool for perceiving the world. In many conversations I've had with non-Christians, the question often comes up of, why does God care that I sin? Now, that's a fair question. A lot of the times, the sins that we commit don't seem to have negative consequences for either ourselves or for others. My favorite analogy to use in this moment is the analogy of someone firing a gun into a dark room. And I'm seeing... Do I need to change mics? Are we on? Hello? Is that better? <laughs> I got a shrug from Sam, that's always encouraging. <laughs> Alright, my favourite analogy to use when thinking about why does God care that we sin is to use the analogy of someone firing a gun into a dark room. Now, in our mind, the room is dark because it is empty. We assume that firing this gun is having no no negative consequences whatsoever. But from the perspective of God, who can see everything in that room clearly, he can see the damage that we are causing when we sin. His heart is breaking over it, all the while we just fire our gun with no idea of what we are doing. If you dedicate your life to following Jesus, you are following someone with the unique ability to perfectly and correctly Illuminate right from wrong, good from evil. By following the light of the world, we can finally correctly perceive the world around us as it actually is and see the damage that our sin causes. Now, one of the primary ways we do this is by studying the very words of Jesus as our guide. That is why here at church we spend so long seeking to understand the Bible well because it is Jesus' words to us to guide us in correctly perceiving the world. In fact, Psalm 119, verse 105 says, Your word is a lamp for my feet, a light on my path. God's word for us acts similarly to the pillar of fire in the wilderness for the Israelites. You see, it led the Israelites. They were to follow it. It told them where to go. It told them when to stop. And it told them when to keep going. In the same way, God's word does that for us. The second thing Jesus meant when he said that he was the light of the world is that light initiates the life-sustaining process. In the very beginning of John's gospel, we get the lens that we are meant to use to view the rest of the story. He writes this, The word gave life to everything that was created, and his life brought light to everyone. You see, Jesus is the word in this passage. And a life led in the light of Jesus will culminate in eternal life. That was a lot of L's from Lachlan. That actually wasn't intentional at all. Let me say it again. A life led in the light of Jesus will culminate in eternal life. This is the whole reason this sermon series from the book of John 
has been called light and life. Because when Jesus talks about being the light of the world, he is promising a life that will never end. I remember when I was in year eight and on a school adventure camp. We were caving, and at one point, the tour guide stopped us, pointed his torch at a hole in the wall up ahead, and said that our path was to go through that hole in the wall. Now, the thought of this terrified me. Tiny space, pitch blackness, no thank you. But I was a dumb teenage boy, and there were girls in the group. So I volunteered to go first. I got down on my stomach, and I started shuffling through this little hole. I have never been more scared in my life. I regretted ever wanting to impress a girl, ever. I had never felt darkness that was so consuming as that moment, trying to squeeze through this little hole in a dark cave. When suddenly, from in front of me, the instructor's torch went on, and I could see the whole cavern. Now, it turns out there was a second way around, and as I had crawled through this little hole, he had led the rest of the group the other way around to stand on the other side of the wall. But that's not the point of this story. The point of this story is that with the light came relief, with the light came salvation, with the light came life. As the pillar of fire led the Israelites from slavery and death in Egypt to an abundant life in the promised land, so too Jesus is the one that we should be following as he leads us from guaranteed death to everlasting life. Jesus is the light of the world, and if we follow him, he promises that we will never walk in darkness. How good is that? Well, that's verse 12 explained. By my maths, there's only another 47 verses in chapter 8 left to go. But to help us understand the enormous conversation that happens once Jesus declares that he's the light of the world, I have simplified the rest of the conversations for us. So here is the simplified version of that conversation. To the peeps of Jerusalem, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. To which the Pharisees complain, you can't be your own witness about that. You see, Jesus has just made this grand claim. And the Pharisees, who were like the religious elite of the time, don't even seek to clarify what he means by being the light of the world. They simply inform him that according to their own traditions and teachings, testimony about oneself was not valid. You needed another witness to back you up. Now, part of this is pretty smart, actually, because you can claim anything. I could tell Ange that we had 500 youth at youth camp. I could tell my wife that the church has just doubled my salary. I could tell my friends that Anthony Albanese has approached me on the down low to rewrite the Australian Constitution. And it's not just me who can make crazy claims. If you're at youth on Friday night, you would have heard Nick claim that he was hit by a semi-trailer on the way to church, and that only made him like five minutes late. Anyone can claim anything. So this initial principle of needing two witnesses is not a bad one at all. But you see, Jesus responds, your law says I need two witnesses, and I have my own testimony and that of my father. Now, this is a little too simplified from the conversation Jesus has, to be honest, because Jesus actually has two responses. His first response, 
as we read about tonight in our Bible reading, is that he is not actually subject to this rule of needing multiple witnesses. These rules don't apply to him because he was sent by God into the world, and God's representative doesn't need human validation. As the light of the world, his testimony is far more valid than a million people making judgments in the dark. But after pointing this out, Jesus then makes this second argument, that he did have another witness. He had his father who sent him. The Pharisees then ask, well, where is your father? Where is this other witness that you claim can back you up? And instead of replying to the question of where, Jesus just informs them that they do not know him with a passive-aggressive full stop. In fact, they can't actually know Jesus' father until they're prepared to accept the one person capable of shining the light on him. This is why Christians are often filled with a surprising amount of confidence in the testimony of Jesus. Because once we accept his testimony about himself, the Father is illuminated, and suddenly we get a secondary witness who confirms everything that Jesus has already said. So here's my first application for tonight. Follow Jesus as the source of light. If you want to live a life that will continue into eternity, you need to follow the one who has already lit up that path, Jesus. If you want to know more about how to follow Jesus, please speak to a pastor or a friend tonight about what that would look like for you. Let's head to conversation number two. So who is Jesus? Verses 21 to 30. As the first conversation sort of naturally wraps up, Jesus begins a new discussion, and he, again, is the simplified version of that. Jesus says, I'm going somewhere you cannot follow. The Jews are confused by this and ask, are you planning on killing yourself? You see, a few chapters earlier, Jesus had made a similar claim, and in that situation, the Jews had assumed that he was heading to a faraway land to teach. But now that he keeps insisting that they cannot follow him, they begin to think that maybe he is planning on killing himself. Now, this is both a misunderstanding, but also an ironic prophecy, because it would be these people who would be the ones to kill Jesus. And now that they've brought up the topic of death, Jesus makes another claim, and he claims that they will die in their sins. He warns them that unless they change their attitude and believe in him, they will die in their sins, and this means dying in darkness. Such a statement makes the Jews again ask, who is this Jesus guy? And Jesus cheekily responds that he has been telling them his identity this whole time. But soon, they will all realize who he is. Now, we're up to chapter 8 of the Gospel of John. And honestly, we as readers only needed the very first chapter to figure out Jesus' identity. But since the majority of the people in the story had not yet figured out who Jesus was, Jesus says that there will come a time when it will become obvious who he is. And that time is when he is lifted up. Now, there are two other times in John's Gospel where this language of being lifted up is used, and both times it refers to his death on the cross. Now, I've been spending a fair bit of my time in the Gospel of Matthew, and Jesus' comments in John are super similar to this comment in Matthew 12. Let me read it for us now. Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, 
Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. He answered, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. When Jesus was lifted up on a cross in front of the whole world and then died and then was laid to rest in a tomb in the earth for three days and then came back to life, this was the most undeniable way of showing who he really was, of revealing his identity. And for those of you sitting here tonight going, great, who is he then? Who is his identity? Hold on a second, that'll be answered in conversation number four. Now, thankfully, it seemed that some of the Jews present actually didn't need to wait for this moment and for this sign, because we read in verse 30, even as he spoke, many believed in him. Which leads us to conversation number three, disciples or frauds. You see, Jesus turned to those who now claimed to follow him and encourages them that the truth will set them free. You'll see from my simplification of the passage again that we're actually in a different group chat now. This time it's directed towards those who claim to believe in him. And so Jesus says that the truth will set them free. Now, this verse is quite often quoted out of context, so let me quickly point out what Jesus is saying here. The truth Jesus is talking about is the truth that he keeps illuminating via his teachings. And if you continue believing what Jesus has said and continue walking in obedience to him, you will be set free from the guilt and the enslaving power of sin. However, rather than accepting this statement from Jesus as good or seeking to clarify what he meant, these people who apparently believe in him straight away reject what he has to say declaring that they are not slaves, they are sons of Abraham. They believe that because they were descendants of Abraham, they would automatically be in God's kingdom. Now, John the Baptist earlier in this book warns them that this is nothing that they can assume. Jesus elsewhere has warned them that not all Jews will inherit God's kingdom. So by assuming that they would have salvation purely because they are sons of Abraham, puts these new converts on really, really shaky ground. Worst of all, because of their misplaced pride in being children of Abraham, these new believers could not accept Jesus' teachings about freedom. So Jesus warns them that everyone who sins is a slave to sin. He goes on and says this, Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free you will be free indeed. Let's pause here for a second and have my second application for tonight. What are you a slave to? Let me word that another way. If you're a Christian here tonight, Jesus has set you free from being a slave. Full stop. You are now a son or a daughter in God's family, not a slave but how many of us are still acting and living as if we were slaves? It's like in the movie Gladiator with Russell Crowe, one of my all-time favorite movies. The main character, Maximus, has been sold into slavery and forced to fight in the Colosseum. Every fight may be his last, but he has no choice. He is a slave. He has to fight. 
In his second fight in the Colosseum, he goes up against this undefeated but retired and freed gladiator. This man is no longer a slave, but has been unable to leave his old life behind. He may be free, but he still acts as if he was a slave. And spoiler alert, this leads to his death. I think many Christians do exactly this. We have been freed from slavery to sin, but we continue to act and continue to live as if it was our master. So I say again, what are you a slave to? Is it an addiction to something, like pornography or alcohol abuse? Is it negative emotions directed towards someone, whether that be anger, bitterness, jealousy? Is it laziness, whether that be expressed in your spiritual walk or in other areas of life? Whatever your master appears to be, here's the solution I have for you. Reflect, confess, repent. Reflect on your life. Reflect on the ways that you are living as if sin was your master. Confess this to God and to someone you trust. And then repent of it. To repent is literally to turn the complete opposite direction. Stop living as if you were a slave to sin. Stop living and acting as if sin was your master. Turn the complete other way around and start acting as a child of God because that is what you are. And this truth will set you free. Returning to the conversation Jesus is having, these people who apparently believe in him just ignore his teachings and instead fixate on their status as sons of Abraham. Jesus points out that they do not act as sons of Abraham. Instead, their actions point towards another father. Now, out of either ignorance or desperation, they conclude that God is their father, to which Jesus brutally responds that the devil is their father. Let me read you exactly what Jesus has to say in these verses. If God were your father, you would love me, for I have come here from God. I have not come on my own. God sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you are unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Yet because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Can any of you prove me guilty of sin? If I am telling you the truth, why don't you believe me? Whoever belongs to God hears what God says. The reason you do not hear is that you do not belong to God. Jesus found it really easy to deny their claim that God was their father. And the evidence for this was that they did not love him, the one who came from God. They have revealed themselves as false disciples, and their insistence that they are not slaves has shown who their true master is. Conversation number four, some big claims, verses 48 to 59. Now, in the last slide, you may have seen a whole bunch of people leaving the group chat. After Jesus calls Satan their father, I expect there was probably a mass exodus of these disciples from the group chat, and therefore the wider Jewish community 
takes the opportunity to make these charges against Jesus. They say you must be possessed to be, to be saying these things. Now, this is not the first time they've claimed that Jesus is possessed by a devil. This will not be the last time in John's gospel that they claim it. The people seem in tune enough to realize that something super spiritual is happening around Jesus, but not in tune enough to realize what the source of that spiritual power is. Now, Jesus obviously denies this claim and makes another huge claim of his own, that everyone who obeys him will never die. And here we come full circle. Obeying Jesus as the light of the world will lead to life. Misunderstanding who Jesus is will lead to death. Now, the Jews can't accept Jesus' claim because even the great Abraham died, and they couldn't conceive of anyone better than him. Jesus then claims supernatural knowledge by suggesting that Abraham rejoiced at the thought of the day that Jesus would arrive. The Jews respond that Jesus is a young man and couldn't possibly know what Abraham could have wanted, which leads us to the climax of this passage. Jesus is about to answer the question I left hanging in conversation number two. Who is he? This is what he says. He says, Very truly I tell you, before Abraham was born, I am. Let's unpack this verse. He starts with this common formula of very truly, or some translations write truly, truly. Now this is a translation of the Hebrew word amen. So Jesus literally says, Amen, Amen, I tell you. Now this is such a classic way of Jesus speaking. He does it 30 times in Matthew and 25 times in John. When we say Amen, it is in response to something someone else has said or prayed. And it is us declaring that we agree that that thing is true and good. Only if someone says something really good might we repeat it and say, Amen, Amen. But when Jesus speaks, he gives amens to his own statements. Glenn Shrivener explains that when Jesus leads with this phrase, he's effectively saying, you do not stand in judgment on my word. I won't even wait for your amen. Your amen could only ever be a faint echo of my amen. You do not and cannot stand in judgment on my word because you've... Before you've even heard a syllable of it, I tell you on my own authority that it is true. This is the only authentication or approval these words ever could or ever should have. Now, if that is what Jesus means when he says, Amen, Amen, who the heck speaks like that? Only someone claiming perfect, unhindered knowledge with nothing hidden in darkness could ever claim this. In some ways... Only God could claim to speak the way Jesus does. Then we look at the other words Jesus speaks. He claims to have existed long before Abraham. Now, as readers of John's Gospel, this doesn't come as a surprise to us. Way back at the very beginning, we are told that Jesus has always existed. And so Jesus is just affirming that here, that he has existed before Abraham. But he actually says more than that here. He ends his phrase with the two words, I am. Now these words, I am, in Greek, are the exact same words used by the Jews to signify God's very name. 
as revealed in Exodus 3.14. In Exodus 3.14, God declares, I am who I am. And the short form of that became I am. Jesus is not just claiming pre-existence over Abraham. He's claiming to be the same God who appeared to Moses in Exodus and appeared to Abraham in Genesis. The people Jesus was speaking to understood the implications of what Jesus was saying. And because they did not believe in him, his words were blasphemy of the worst sort. Stoning was the penalty of blasphemy. And as we read in verse 59, at this they picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. So to answer the question of who is Jesus, Jesus is God. And if Jesus is God, what should be our third application for the night? Well, I think our third application should be just to fulfill with greater urgency my first two applications. So let's revisit them. Number one, follow Jesus. He is both the true source of light and life and God himself. Secondly, follow no other master. Do not let yourself be enslaved to anything else, but accept the offer of God to become a son or a daughter. I think this is where John 8 leaves us. It leaves us with these two application points. And I'm going to pray that we too will leave here with those application points. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for coming to earth. God yourself coming to teach us and to lead us. I pray for all of us here tonight who have heard your word, that we would understand that you are the true light of the world and that we would follow you in that always. Amen. This is just a reminder for those on the live stream. Um, after this song, we will be uh, coming together in communion if you want to um, prepare something for that so that you can share in that with us. Verses 31 to 32 says, If you hold my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth. The truth will set you free. That third conversation, we were reminded that if we are, if we are slaves uh, to sin, well then, sin is our master. But we know that through the blood and the sacrifice of Christ, that is no longer true. For Christ has broken those chains for us. So in this next song, as we sing, uh, let us rejoice in this beautiful and amazing grace and how our chains have been broken. Let's stand together.